Welcome to the Sharon Fitzmaurice podcast, episode 44 today. And my next guest is resilient coach, Josh Connolly. As one of the UK's most influential mental health advocates, Josh regularly speaks on BBC, ITV and Channel 5 News. He has also spoken in the House of Commons, contributed to mental health policy, and even advised the script writing team of Hollyoaks. He has run resilience workshops for village schools and global brands alike. Additionally, he is an ambassador for NACOA, a national charity supporting people affected by parents drinking. Thank you, Josh, and you're very, very welcome. Thank you, Sharon. Very good to be here. I'm always feel slightly awkward when people are reading out the, the intro to me, but uh, no, look, it's really good to be here. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always saying that to my guests, you know, that we have so many labels, don't we, in life and how that we have to introduce ourselves, especially when you are being introduced by somebody else. And I mm. remember somebody was introducing me on a podcast and I couldn't stop laughing because I said, is that me? Is that how people see me? <laughs> you know, yeah. because we might have a different perception of ourselves. But again, we have to identify and label ourselves, unfortunately, for us to put ourselves out there. And mm. sometimes those labels don't cover every aspect of who we are as a person or the work that we do. So mm. I'm very intrigued. Um, I connected with you on LinkedIn and straight away it grabbed my attention. And if something, you know, piques my curiosity, I want to find out more. So I don't do loads of research on my guests because it's like sitting in a pub or a cafe or somewhere and you meet somebody, you want to find out a little bit more about them. Mm. So your biography is amazing. And that's how you identify yourself now. But who is Josh Connolly from where he started to where he is now? And where, how did you come about to be this amazing person? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the story in and of itself is a long one. But essentially, um, I struggled for a lot of my life. Um, and... I don't even think I necessarily always knew that I was struggling or, or that the ways that I felt were as kind of desperate as they were. I can see that now when I look back to where I was in my life, but growing up, I grew up with a, with a, with a father who had a serious problem with alcohol. Uh, I lost him when I was nine years old and I never really developed a core sense of who I was. I, I, I didn't know that. And I think I'd spent a lot of my life actually running away from who I was um, and, and, and the person that I was supposed to be. I now recognize that I'm very sensitive. I would say highly sensitive. Um, I was kind of taught by society and the, and the house that I lived in that, that I was too sensitive and that I needed to toughen up and be stronger. And so I spent my life running away from the ways that I felt. And again, I, I say this upon reflection I didn't know it at the time um, and certain parts of myself became polarized and I struggled went on myself to struggle with alcohol uh, and anything else that I could use to get out of myself and the ways that I felt um, and then when I made it into adulthood you know I was still kind of using the same defense mechanisms that I'd always used which was escape the ways that I feel and just show up and I thought that's what resilience was, right? I thought it was just this ability to just keep showing up no matter what. Um, and that was detrimental to me. 
because I never really understood myself and I was never able to communicate my needs. And so by the time I was 24 years old, I, 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 I found myself uh, with a failed marriage. I had four children. Um, I was thousands, about 17,000 pounds in debt. I was back living on a fold out bed at my mum's house. And I, you know, I reached that kind of real dark place where, you know, for a long time I hadn't seen any way out. And then I, I sort of decided that, that, that the best thing for me and everybody around me was for me not to be here. And then I went to see my kids for one last time. And because I knew what was going to happen, the, the, the kind of past became irrelevant. The future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my children in a way I'd never experienced. I remember cuddling my daughter and feeling it. And so I changed my mind. Um, but more importantly than changing my mind, I realized that what was killing me was coming from inside of me. Right. And from then on in my life, that was 10 years ago. Uh, I began to kind of work on myself and try and understand myself on a deeper level. And, and my idea of what resilience is, is, you know, began to completely change. And I found the work that I was doing on myself um, to be so meaningful and so life-changing. I kind of uh, began to share that with the world and then it seemed to resonate and it's took me into doing the work that I get to do today. So I'm very fortunate in that sense. Um, uh, I'm very lucky to get to do what I do today, but but so much of it has come from from such a dark place. Mm. And I know, and you know, a lot of your story resonates with me, Josh, you know, and that's why I started this podcast. I've been working with people for years, but again, I, I needed to share other people's stories, people's stories mm. like you, you know, that have also come through so much in those darker times. And you know, even when you were talking about your father's drinking, you know, and that you lost him at nine years of age and an impact like that in your life is huge. Mm. Did your father pass away or did he just go from your lives? No, when I was nine years old, um, I was actually at my dad's uh, where he used to live. I used to go and visit him on the weekend. My dad, you could say drank himself to death, but I think he very, um, I think he quite consciously took well I mean he took his own life so uh I can't say that he drank himself to death but really he took his own took his own life and I was kind of, I was with him when it happened um and you know the kind of people pleasing part of myself would be you know was so strong that when it happened I didn't even phone anybody because I thought if I phone an ambulance my my mum's gonna know that I've seen this and and I and I was desperate to protect her and so eventually the phone rang in the in the flat and my um my mum, it was my mum, and I said, Look, dad's really drunk, you need to pick us up. And my mum came and picked us up out the front. We went home, and it was two days later that I found out they had uh, passed away. Yeah. Wow. Extremely hard if you look back at that nine year old young boy, Josh. Mm. Um, what do you feel for him now? I've done a lot of uh, inner child work. Uh, so it's like a big part of kind of the journey that I've been on. Um, and, and what I feel for him now is love, right? I feel a want and a need to kind of protect him and parent him in the way that I feel like he always lacked. And so that relationship that I have now has come through a lot of work though, right? Uh, I think originally, uh, I'm going to say I nothinged him in that I pushed him so far to the back and, uh, you know, these parts of myself began to exist as a way to protect him. And I think that's been, you know, a massive learning for me as a person is I, I would talk about wearing masks. Um, 
but what I've found over the last 10 years is that actually they, ne they weren't necessarily masks that I was wearing. They were parts of myself that existed because they loved me enough to try and protect me. Um, and, and, and some of those parts became very polarized. The kind of tough guy, hard man um, was probably the most polarized in my teenage years and my, my early twenties. Um, so, so yeah, my relationship now with that part of myself is much closer, probably still overprotective in, in, in many ways. Um, and, and, you know, that can be detrimental to, to, to myself in, in, in some cases still in my life today, but it's much closer, right? It's much more uh, of a loving relationship, mm, I would say. That's lovely. Thank you, Josh. It's extremely hard. And I know that you work a lot with young people. And we all know in our society, you know, that we don't all have the happy families and it's not like it is in the movies at times. And there's a lot of children and teenagers, young people are suffering. And of course, it has a knock on effect on their young adult life and the paths they choose and the choices they make for themselves on a daily basis, good, bad or indifferent. And if you're looking back to your nine year old Josh, you know, and seeing what he has come through and the choices that you made as a young person, you know, right up to that age of 24, when you just thought, I, you know, I can't do this any longer. Do you think much has changed in our society now? Um, in a word, no, I don't. I think we have... Uh, I think a lot of the coping mechanisms that we use as people and that are sort of presented as solution uh, are largely unhealthy and based around emotional avoidance. I think actually uh, we talk a lot more about mental health, um, but actually I think a lot of it is still driven by emotional avoidance. I actually think this might be perhaps kind of controversial, so I'll try and explain it as clearly as I can as how I see it. I think in some ways we, we've begun to use the whole mental health struggle um, in and of itself as a term to be able to avoid the ways that we feel. Mm. Uh, if I am to just say to you, I'm struggling with my mental health today, uh, what I might actually mean is I'm riddled with guilt because I've been doing something that I shouldn't be doing for the last week. And I don't really want to be able to connect with that on a deep, meaningful level. Mm. So let me just say I've got a mental health problem and actually I don't need to go there. Now, I'll caveat it by saying I, I, I understand that and I understand why as people we do that. Um, but I do think that um, largely speaking, we just find new ways to avoid having to deal with emotions um, and we just dress them up differently. And I think that's kind of what's happening predominantly now. Mm. You know, and that's one of the things I speak about quite a lot is, you know, and I've had my own issues in my life, you know, and I always talk about that. It was the lack of emotion and intelligence I had, you know, knowing what those emotions were, how to, you know, understand them, to listen to them, to be with them, you know, and embrace them at, you know, many times in my life that I should have. But like you said, we push them away, we you know, avoid them. And I used to think because I'm a bit older than you, Josh, but I used to think is because we didn't have the awareness years ago and we wore the masks, yes, as a protection, but also to hide our shame and guilt from maybe our backgrounds, where our families, the things that we'd been through, the choices we'd made. And now there is so much awareness, you know, and I've noticed this particularly in the past 10 years, there's so much awareness out there 
but still it's not getting to the crux of it. It's mm-hmm. not truly helping the young people because they're not taught emotional intelligence. They're not mm-hmm. taught at schools, you know, or in their youth clubs or, you know, because if the parents aren't aware and if the teachers aren't aware, how are the children supposed to be aware? What do you feel is needed, Josh, to help our young people at this time? Or what would you love to go out and do to teach or help people be more emotionally aware? I think, you know, it's a, it's a bigger question than it, than it might seem at, at first sight. But I think what's missing from a lot of young people's lives is emotionally available adults, right? And so what we tend to do is we think, right, what we need to do is start delivering mental health um, lessons, right? That lessons that are kind of teaching people about mental health. And I sort of say, most children don't need necessarily to learn the basics of mental health. They just need an adult to help them to comprehend their experience. Yeah. And unless they have that, actually everything else becomes completely pointless. Um, or not completely pointless, that might be a little bit harsh, but becomes um, less worthy. And I think in the world that we live in today, if your mum and dad can't be emotionally available for you, there's a very good chance that there isn't going to be another adult that is mm. on a day-to-day basis, right? Most people or a lot of people don't live anywhere near their grandparents, for example, and we don't really have community in the way that we may have done a few, you know, once upon a time, particularly if you go way back to when we used to live in much more community. Um, and so what I would like to see is a coming back to our children um, if you I don't like to get too sort of political on it, but if you look at the way in which we fund and support our young people, I mean, it's an actually really a disgrace on our part. Um, and so it's kind of a twofold answer. The first thing is that as adults, we need to do enough work on ourselves to be able to be with children to help them comprehend their emotions. Because I'm a father myself. And if I can't be myself in my emotions, then I won't let my children be themselves in their emotions either. Why? Because I won't know how to, right? Mm. So we have to do the work on ourselves first. And then we have to start creating more spaces for children that aren't just driven around academic results, that are driven more around creating spaces for children that provide emotionally available adults and help them to comprehend who they are when they experience what they experience. Because that's what I lacked. And I think that's what a lot of people lack. Um, I think if you look at the way society works, right, we're sending, rightly or wrongly, we're sending parents back to work as quickly as we can nowadays, right? Mm. So, so you know, we've got a lot of stressed, uh, under-present parents, often through no fault of their own. Uh, and so we've got to find ways to find emotional presence for, for children. So I, that, I hope that kind of in a, in a rounded way answers the question. Mm. Absolutely, it does. And um, I wanted to get your take on it, because I think, yes, a lot of um, awareness starts within the home or by the caregiver or, you know, the person that they spend most of the time with. And again, unfortunately, life has become very busy and very stressful for a lot of parents or caregivers. And we're seeing it even here now in Ireland, not only in the UK, it's all over the world that the children are left with somebody and they're given a screen or they're given a a tv and said here stay there and then it's a rush at dinner time if they get if they're lucky enough to sit together at dinner time and then off to bed and it's rushing from one you know recreational thing to the next just filling time when most of the children just want that time with their parent or their caregiver 
Why have we become a society that needs to fill in this space so much, Josh? Do you think it's avoidance? I do think it's avoidance. I think um, I think technology now taps into our need to escape as well, which doesn't help, right? So we know that things like social media and all these kind of devices now, they are built, right, with the intelligence that's needed to tap into our vulnerabilities, right? Um, but if you take that a step further, I think if you kind of look at the, 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 the kind of capitalist society in which we live in, right, it thrives on everything um, that's kind of needed to make us emotionally struggle, right? For me to sell anything, or for anybody to sell anything to anybody, they have to make them believe that what they've got isn't enough, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of just fed this message. And I think, it, you know, look, it happens when we go to school, right? Most people, children are told, if you don't knuckle down, then you're not gonna, mm-hmm. you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna make it, right? And if you don't work really, really hard, then you're not gonna make it. And so who's letting these kids know that, you know, their value exists because they exist and nobody is, right? From the moment you hit five years old and you go to school, you're told you're not good enough unless you put the effort in. And then you leave school and and everything that you see and that you tap into tells you that you're not good enough. Um, and so you're always, you always feel like you're chasing. Um, and I think that taps into that kind of human part of ourselves that does strive for more, right? Which is quite a, um, a natural instinct in itself, right? But that's taken and manipulated by the kind of parameters of the society that we exist in. And that's not me um, like bashing capitalism as such. That's I just think it's the fact of the ways that we live today. Right. And so unless we find ways to kind of counteract that mm. and, you know, I'm talking simple things like um, I won't use my device in my house past six o'clock most days if something comes up for work i sometimes do evening events etc of course i you know it's slightly different then but um generally speaking in my house we don't like to have the devices after a certain time most of the time right some of these are some of the things that we can install in our own lives to bring us away to take us off the grid for periods of time during our life to come away from that constant messaging Mm. that you're not good enough which is what it is Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. And I know even from some of my guests or people that I work with, and they would say that also, you know, it's trying to find space and time in their day, because yes, people have to go to work and they have mortgages and rent and food and bills and everything has become expensive now. And they're, they feel guilty. You know, there's a lot of guilty parents out there that they wish they could mm. spend more time with their kids. And of course, that guilt then is another thing they're holding on to and affects their relationship with themselves and then their children or their partners. So it's this vicious cycle constantly, you know. So again, what you said, I think it's really vitally important, you know, that a parent of any child, you know, needs to look at themselves first. You know, Mm. because if a child came into me or a young person, you know, with all of these issues, I usually say, well, you know, I'd like to meet your mom or dad or whoever your caregiver as well, because more than likely what you just said, they're not getting what they need at home. They're not allowing themselves to express emotionally because the child sometimes becomes responsible for the parents' emotional needs, which is kind Mm. of happening quite a lot. Do you agree, Josh? I think it's happening probably more than a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the hardest conversations to have because so often when you start to talk in this way, 
what happens is people can find themselves feeling very defensive, right? It mm -hmm. feels like uh, Josh is attacking parents and blaming it all on the parents again. I'm a parent myself, right? I think if you get it right 20% of the time, I think you're doing really, really well. But what I would say is that as a parent myself, I have to acknowledge that I don't get it right for probably 70, 80% of the time, right? Um, and I have to acknowledge that in myself. I have to acknowledge, I always use a you know example of my son. He's 10 now. Me and him had a really kind of fractious relationship probably for a year or two, a little while back. And I remember saying to my wife, I don't know what I'm going to do about him. And my wife in the end had to say to me, he's not the problem, you are. And it wasn't, and, and of course it hurt when she said it, but then I did start to realize that what was happening is his level of sensitivity was making me feel uncomfortable because I was sensing that level of sensitivity and it was pulling down some of the barriers that I'd built up in my life against my own sensitivity. Mm. And so if my child is behaving in a certain way, then for me, I have to look at that as communication. And if I look at that of communication and really ask why are they behaving in this way? Why are they showing up? Why are they interacting in the world this way? The truth is, is that most of the time, at least, I'll trace it back to me. Mm. And that takes a hell of a lot of self-work for me to do. But um, once I start to realize that, I start to realize the best thing that I can do for my children is work on myself. Mm. Because they don't want a lot. They don't want a lot. Um, all they want, all they want is me to be there. Mm. Me to, to be, be there, present. To be present. And I think it's, uh, I'm sure it was Gabor Mate, I first heard say this. Um, either way, it's not my original saying, but um, he says that we think the responsibility as parents lies in the fact that we've lived our lives and so we have to teach our children how to live theirs, right? We, we've, done, we've gone before them and so we show them how to do it. He says that's not the major responsibility. The responsibility as a parent lies in just how much my children will abandon themselves in order to attach to me. Yeah. And when I start to realize that, then all of their behavior is trying to communicate their need to be in my presence. And it's nearly always traced back to my inability to be in my presence, my inability to be in my presence, right? Mm. Because I know my kids are at their best when I'm present and fully at my best, yeah? Mm. When do I get, you know, most angry with my children or, or annoyed or triggered by my children? when they're interfering with my routine of trying to escape the ways that I feel when I'm present with them, they're present with me and there ain't no trouble. That's, that's kind of the truth of it. When I, when I break things down for me. At least. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really like that. And I love the way you've broken it down. And I always say, I have to start with myself, you know, come back whenever there's an issue outside of me, or I believe it's outside of me that it really starts with me. It's how I'm perceiving it or, you know, it's that I don't have the time to think about it, but it all comes back to me. And I'm constantly saying that. I also say that my children are my greatest teachers. They have taught mm. me a huge amount about myself about myself being present, you know, with other people, with myself, avoidance, you know, dealing with um, emotions, you know, there's a list of things, you know, and I wrote about it so many times and I still speak about it and I go, they're still teaching me and they're now 21 and 20. Mm -hmm. And they've taught me so much, you know, when they were younger, but in particular as they're getting older, because now they are young adults, you know, and mm -hmm. they're, living their lives and it was also that need to be able to step back and allow them to make the mistakes and to 
you know, misjudge situations, but to learn from it without going in and saying, you should, I told you not to do it. You know, why did you do it that way? And again, like we all made the mistakes in our lives, even with the backgrounds we had, that we're in a place now where we are more aware. And really, I, when I look at them now, and I'm so proud of them, you know, I just want them to be aware of themselves, mm. just of their environment, the people they're with. And again, how do they feel? in that awareness, you know, and mm. I'm still teaching adults now that are even older than us, you know, and they don't know how to be aware of their mm. emotions or to be aware of other people's emotions and still communicating with their children or their partners. And I don't think it's ever too late, Josh, but I think that a lot of people are kind of waking up to, as we spoke about earlier, you know, being emotionally available. And mm. what that means for you as a person individually, but also being emotionally available for others. Mm. Do you think that it's something that we are in fear of, you know, that we're going to show our vulnerabilities and it will be seen as a sign of weakness? You know, does that happen automatically because of our backgrounds do you believe or it's something that we have been taught you know going to school and to chin up get on with it do the best you can it doesn't matter how you feel and that we're not given time in our daily lives to really just sit and be I think a lot of it I think a lot of it is happening at a sub level for most people within their adulthood right they've built up so many layers um to what's going on I, I think if I look back to when I was really really struggling right I was nowhere near any kind of belief or understanding that what I was doing was some kind of defense mechanism against my emotions right I thought I was rotten to the core that's what I thought I thought there was something wrong with me I thought if you saw who I really was you would think that too right um and so I think for a lot of people it's so deep and they've built up so many defense mechanisms against it I think it's hard for them to even comprehend what they're experiencing. Mm. Um, and I do think that comes from, from what happens so much in our childhood, right? Children are always taught when you feel sad. You know, I think even if, if you look at the pandemic over the last 18 months, mm. you realize how difficult we find it as human beings to understand that, that our experience and our struggles still matter, even when somebody else has it worse than us. Right. Mm. I, like if you come out and said last year that, you would absolutely, as, as I was, absolutely devastated that my holiday for my kids, my particularly my two youngest, was cancelled. And I had to tell them we weren't going to the beach. And there was this kind of sense that, like, how dare you feel sad about that when COVID's killing people? Mm. And, and you have to look at it and think, wait, my, my, my experience is relative to who I am and what I'm experiencing. Mm. And just because I'm feeling desperately sad about this in this moment, it doesn't mean that I'm not feeling sad about how somebody else experienced that's worse. And there's a there's a there's a strange kind of emotional avoidance strategy that goes on with this whole people had it way worse than me and I think a lot of children are told that right mm. you go to school and you learn you're very lucky to be who you are and people have it way worse than you so if you're ever sad there's people over the other side of the world that have got it way worse than you you know if you're stressed wait until you become an adult if you're scared there's nothing to be scared of right uh, and if you're angry by the way then well you'll probably get thrown out of whatever environment that you're mm. in and so people grow up not comprehending who they are in their range of emotions. I didn't know who I was when I was sad. I didn't, I didn't know how to be myself when I was sad. Why? Because 
Nobody ever showed me. Nobody ever helped me to comprehend who I was when I was sad. So what did I do when I was sad? I desperately ran away. Mm. I mean, internally ran away. I used alcohol and drugs or anything else, right? Mm. Um, and so I think, I think we, we teach that to people. We teach that. I think, you know, we're talking about emotions a lot more today. And I think some people are just saying, focus on the positives all the time and everything will be all right. And, and, and I think a lot of people that do need the, let's call it the deep healing work, have spent all their lives having to focus on the positives because they haven't had a choice but to do that. Mm. And actually, I know for me, what I realized I needed was not to find gratitude in places where it wasn't or, or anything like that, was for somebody to come and put their arm around me and let me experience the difficult emotions that nobody had ever put their arm around me and let me experience. Mm. And so, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And so I, or, you know, my story is, is that I almost had to break really um, to be able to then have no other choice, but to start looking at this stuff. Um, I was lucky that when, in a way I was lucky that when I broke, I didn't have anybody left in my life. So I didn't have the fear of losing anybody by, by completely re rebuilding who I am um, or coming back to who I am, but, but rebuilding in that sense. I think a lot of people find themselves in uh, kind of making up a scenario here, but find themselves in a marriage with kids and a desperate yearning to understand who they are and what's going on. And what do they do? Because there's huge risk in coming out and saying, I'm not who I pretend mm. to be because you could lose everything. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, there's so many layers and so many complexities and nuances and contradictions to it. Um, if we just got it right in those first few years, I think the rest would be a little bit easier. <laughs> yes, if only life could be easier. <laughs> and you know what, Josh, um, you made me smile when you said, you know, that um, we've often heard, you know, other people have it worse off. And it made me smile because it went back to my own childhood when we didn't have very much. My mother used to say, you know, make sure you eat your dinner and you might want to eat it. And she'd say, all the children are starving in Africa and you won't eat your dinner. Yeah. And I used to think, oh, God, we're awful. You know, we won't eat our dinner and those poor kids have nothing. And I found myself repeating that same sentence to one of my children when they were younger. And my eldest son just looked at me with the cheeky face that he has. And he pushed the plate over to me and he said, here, if they're that hungry, send it to them. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's why they're our greatest teachers, right? Because they... Yeah. Because they, they show us those things, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I just thought it was amazing. So here was me putting this guilt over on him, and he wasn't having any of it. But it, in that moment, it made me very aware of the repeats, you know, the things mm. that we have learned over time. And sometimes unconsciously, we're repeating our parents' words. And we mm. don't mean it. It's just something because you're frustrated because your child's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm. so you know I'm always saying that to people just listen to the way you speak to yourself first of all you know that self-talk and that inner critic and you know are you ever kind of compassionate to yourself or is 70% of your self-talk in your head and I remember one man said to me one day Jesus if I went inside my head I'd never come out again he said it's so bad <laughs> so he had that avoidance of looking within himself but just as you said from a very young age he had learned to avoid he had learned to just be in survival mode to get through and survive his childhood into adulthood 
So that became his way of life. And he found it extremely hard to feel safe, not in his environment, but just within himself. Mm. And I think that's happened to quite a lot of adults, you know, that if you kind of break it down for them, they'd say yes, because everything was a threat years ago. And I know it's not now, but my body is still triggered by certain things or certain Mm. emotions or certain experiences or people and all of those things. But then again, it's only learning like you have done and I have done and many of my lovely guests and people I know, they've had to go in and do that deep inner work. It's not always a lovely place to go, Josh. Um, For me, I always say I went into the darkest and dirtiest parts of myself and I had to sit with it and I had to learn to be kind and loving and compassionate to those parts because they were the parts crying out for love and attention. The good parts of me, the smiley parts and the parts where I was in good form, they were okay. But it was these parts of me that I felt ashamed or guilty for having they're the ones that needed the most attention. And I think for a lot of people, the fear is that if anybody sees them, like you said, they'll go, oh, my God, I don't want to go near you or have anything to do with you because they're dreadful. But in truth, every human being in life has light and dark within them. Mm, yeah. I, you know, I think, it, I think the obsession that you see in Western culture with like murder mysteries and that, right? That's no coincidence. That's when that's when our shadow comes out to play, right? Yeah. So because because the dark side in you gets to come out and play for a little while. I think I think a lot of what you see in trolling online, right? When people get to be anonymous and then come out and troll people, that hateful part of them comes out and gets a playground, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when we talk about the healing work, you know, it can sometimes be presented as this kind of mystical wonderful journey that you go on of (laughs) self-discovery and it's just amazing and all that and it's not that right none of it's none of it's fun or kind of nice right it's not um you have to go in and get yourself acquainted and spend you know a lot of my healing work is spending time noticing right awareness i just say notice me exactly noticing yeah and when you when you know when you can get to a place of doing that free from judgment then the amount of stuff that you can do or the amount of things that you can learn about yourself on any given day. You know, when I spend time noticing where I tried to use my intellect to, you know, make somebody like me or where I became the tough man because I was around loads of men and I felt a little bit scared or, you know, when, like you say, I spoke to my children in exactly the way that I tell people that they shouldn't and all that, you know, I think when you start to, to become aware, you realize that we're all kind of, flawed individuals just trying to make our way right and that's we love a hero story in our culture and that's why i get a little bit uncomfortable with the kind of hero um stories right i'm often presented as this person who had all these struggles and overcome them and i have to start always by saying to people i haven't overcome anything right i'm just a human being trying to make my way right and on any given day i can be in just as much darkness as i was back 10 years ago right but what I have today is a level of awareness, right? And a kind of recognition. Here's why I did this. It makes sense, right? It makes sense when I listen and hear my whole, my whole story. But the healing journey for me has not been one where I've just stopped old habits, right? It's one where, like you say, I've become aware of them. And so they, they, they happen a lot less. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm still just a human being trying to make my way. Yeah. 
And I think that's the acceptance, you know, I would say, mm. you know, where self-acceptance comes in. And I just was working with a group last night and I said, you know, you know, accepting yourself right now in this moment, even if you feel like the worst person in the world, just accepting for who you are right now, maybe then you can start acknowledging like why that person, you know, became you in this mm. moment, you know, and to not always have to go back to the past because sometimes people stay there, Josh, you know, and they use it in that victim, you know, and I use that word, you know, respectfully because, you know, I know some people still feel like a victim because of circumstance or what's happened in their lives. But if we stick in that victim mentality, we continue the same story over and over again. So for lots of people, they would say, well, you survived, you know, Sharon being a victim. And I said, I did. And I'm not a survivor anymore. I'm now thriving. I'm thriving as the best version of myself right now in this moment. As you mm. said later on, it may not be the best version of myself if I stood back and looked at me. But every day I try and do, do the best that I can with the awareness that I have now. And that awareness could be different in a year's time or in five mm -hmm. years time. But I'll do the best I can with the awareness I have right now. And I think if we acknowledge and accept that for ourselves, I think we start to become a little bit more gentle and kinder to ourselves as people, as individuals and as parents and as, you know, the general public. And that what we're putting out there now is a truth and honesty in our vulnerability and saying, this is who I am. And I still have my struggles. I still have my dark days, but I'm doing the best that I can. And you know what? That's OK. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what that's why self-compassion is so, so important. Right. I, I just think because you just learn to kind of with that through that awareness and that acceptance, you know, when I, when I make mistakes, when I get it wrong, I have an understanding of why it happened and who I am in the world today. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that is like you say, slightly different to that part of myself that would love to go back to, or, or, or to live in that kind of space where I do these things because I've been wronged and that's why I keep messing up and that's why I'm not going to do any work on myself, right? Because uh, I'm not going to, you know, it's not my responsibility because it wasn't my responsibility, the things that happened to me and all of that's true, right? Um, but I have, to, I have to recognize that part of myself and say, actually, I can't let that part of myself live lead, live and lead my life right mm. um, i want to spend time with that part of myself and validate that part of myself mm. uh and 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 actually i think i should do that um but ultimately i don't want to live there i want to live in who who i was supposed to be and mm. ultimately my healing is my responsibility mm. at the end of the day right my healing is my responsibility that doesn't mean that i do it alone right but it means that I take responsibility to make sure that I have the people in my life that I need to support me through that work. Right. Mm. But I have, to, I ha it has to start with me. Mm. It has to start with me. Otherwise it starts with nobody. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. I think you're so right, Josh. So when you go into schools now and you're dealing with, you know, lots of energetic young people, you know, and they don't have their screens in front of them and you start talking about embracing your feelings and, you know, owning mm. who you are and owning those feelings, what's the reaction you get? So I try and do it in a certain way. Okay. So I do some like little messing about exercises that get them to sort of think about themselves in, in slightly different ways. Um, 
but but what I would say is once that I start talking about the fact that um, I felt different when I was younger and that I realized that some of the things that happened in my house didn't happen in everybody else's mm -hmm. house. Um, they're yearning for it. These young people are yearning for it. You know, I can see them looking at me. Some of them engage by getting irritable and some of them engage by talking and messing about with the person next to them. And I make it clear to the teachers before we start, when they do that, you don't throw them out, I'll deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm delivering, I'll deal with it. If they want to mess about, let them mess about because they're doing it to be able to keep themselves in the room. So you don't eject them from the room because they're mm -hmm. the ones that need it. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a million and one different reactions, but what I would say is that um, when I start to talk about anxiety or overwhelm, when I talk about how I used to get rageful um, and where that came from and what that felt like, and I let them know that there's no, uh, I'm not here to try and change them or fix them. There's no outcome in what I'm doing. There's no outcome here. I'm creating a space where I'm going to explore myself and hope that these young people can get curious about themselves. Um, then I think some of them engage in the best that they can. The problem is I normally have an hour with them and then I'm gone, right? Um, they should have at least an hour like that every day. And people say to me, um, you know, it's not all children that need that kind of work. I think that the, the, the environment that you need to create for somebody that experiences a lot of dysfunction or trauma or whatever you want to call it at home, the environment that they need created for them is the perfect environment for the person that has the perfect environment at home and is really academic. So, so nobody loses out here, mm. right? Emotionally available and emotionally uh, respectful spaces are the perfect spaces for all young people, regardless of what they've experienced. Mm. And so we need to do more. We need to do more of that, right? I, I, listen, I hated school because I couldn't sit down, right? Because I couldn't sit still and I found it really difficult to be present in a lesson. And I still go to schools where children are getting thrown out of the lesson for fiddling with a bit of blue tack. Mm. When that's the only way that they can sit there and be in the lesson, right? And so... I, when it comes back to young people, I just think we have so much, so much more that we need to do. And so much of it, by the way, is just slowing down and take, let's take away some of this academic pressure, right? Mm. We live in a completely different world today, by the way, mm. um, where you can find a lot out by typing the question into Google and it'll tell you the answer anyway. Mm -hmm. right? So, so we can take away some of this learning that we're trying to teach young people and let's make them really emotionally literate yeah. and see what happens then <laughs> I, mean, I think it should be a completely different world and yes I would hope and my hope for the future would be that there's a balance you know and that again it's not just all about you know the academia and the competitiveness and being the best and if you don't as you said it there if you're not the best you're not going to get anywhere we all know that not everybody is into academia you know that we need tradespeople, we need artists and musicians to make the world this beautiful place that it is and again I think that should be more um, nurtured more within children and in schools but then I hear from many teachers that I work with that they have pressure then from the education system and that they need to get their school up to a certain level or, you know, they lose 
other people coming and registering and enrolling. So there's pressure always from the top. And I'm going, well, where is the top? Where is mm. the top? Who are the people at the top that can make those changes? And until they're aware, I don't think anything is going to happen down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you agree? I do agree. Um, I would caveat it by saying somewhere near the top's us. Yeah. And what I mean by that is we want to know where our tax money's going, right? Mm. That's how we vote on who's going in, right? Yeah. And the funding that's needed for emotionally lit literate schools is not going to create the kind of statistics that you can put out on Twitter, right? And they're going to make your school look really good. Mm. I went to uh, my 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 15 year old daughter's uh, open evening. She's in her final year of school. And it was like this open evening for the parents to come to. So we all, I was there and it was about an hour and 15 minutes. And I think we spent probably 20, 25 minutes of that, which is a, a large portion of the time, talking about the benefits of 100% attendance, right? Um, and this is known as one of the best schools um, in my area. That's not why she goes there. It just happens to be known as one of that. Why is it? Probably because they've got great attendance records and 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 the kids do really well with, um, you know, academically. Mm. So, but, but, but you can't necessarily blame the school because they're one of the best. And so what do they get? Loads of funding. So they get more money because they're one of the best, right? And then, so they get more students going there. And then, so then when you start going, we're voting in the people, although there's a whole conversation about how much power we actually do have and mm. whether they do actually serve us and all that kind of stuff. But that's a whole separate subject. But what we do have as people is to start to, push when we go into our schools mm. and you know it takes me you know people like myself when I went to that open evening and I said this was about showing that it was labeled that the, the evening was labeled as showing the parents how well how we're going to support your children through their most important year of their life there was one we were shown one slide on stress and it was like a funny picture of a child looking stressed and they said if you think your child's too stressed email us and we'll help you and that was it there was nothing on well-being. There was nothing on emotional support. There, so there was none of that. So we need as individuals, when we go into our schools and when we're thinking about what school we're going to put our children in, we need to start asking the heads and the, and the main people there, what's your well-being plan? Mm. How are you going to be emotionally available for my, ch my child in this space? Mm. In those days when I'm not emotionally available because they're coming mm. for whatever reason, Who's there for my child in, 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 when they're spending most of their time at school every day? And if we all start asking it and we all show that we're not, we're not happy when it's not there, well, then they'll have to start doing it because they need to get us through the door. So, so there is a lot that we can do, but we need to collectively have these conversations so that we can all feel empowered as adults to go in and say, what are you doing about this in the school? Mm. Um, so there is a lot, there is more that we can do. Um, we have a lot of power as people and I think we, we need to just remember that it's very easy to feel like we don't mm. I think to some degree we we do have a lot of it taken away from us again another conversation in itself but yes. but, but but the power that we do have we must make sure that we use it very good I love that point that makes so much sense you know and it is true you know that we are responsible for the people that are in power and that we need to 
raise our voices and speak about the issues that really matter to us. And nothing matters more than our children and their future, you know, and their well-being. So I think it's something that's becoming more prominent, especially here in Ireland. And we have an amazing, you know, lots of amazing organizations, but they're all charity. They're funded by the public, not by the governments, you know, mm -hmm. and we're raising money so that they can go into schools and deliver these well-being programs and all of these things. And again, it's not good enough. You know, even though these amazing organizations are doing so much, they're begging for money to go in and help these children and the government are still not seeing it. They're still mm. not seeing it. So, yes, we need to be the voice of our children. That's mm. really, really powerful, Josh. So I wanted to ask you if you now could make a change at this very moment for yourself and for society, what would it be? If I could make a change for myself and for, for society, um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, and this might sound simplistic, I'm going to say um, I would create more space, right? And what I mean by that is space that's device-free, that's kind of busyness-free, where we just come back to ourselves and remember who and what we're supposed to be, right? Um, and I think if we can do that, create more space, I think we learn a lot more about ourselves, right? And I thought, by the way, when I got sober 10 years ago that, I was going to do all these amazing things. And I've done a lot of them, by the way. Mm. Um, but that's not what's made my sobriety as amazing as it is, right? The most amazing times that I have is when I might be playing snakes and ladders with my daughter, right? And we'll be laughing and playing and doing what we do. And then I'll have a moment where I'll come round. I'll come out of the spell because it is a spell. Mm. I'll come out of it. And I'll think, wow, for like 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is, I was, I didn't care about anything else on the planet apart from my daughter in this game of snakes and ladders. Mm. And they're the moments that, that, that I cherish the most. They're the moments that I dreamed of all of my life without even knowing that I dreamed of them. Mm. And I have to, I have to be honest and say to you, they're way more fleeting than I wish they were. Mm. Those moments, they're way more fleeting than I wish they were. Um, and that's because life is pulling at me all of the time. Yeah, it's mm. pulling at me through my devices. It's pulling at me through everything else in my life, right? And so sometimes I have to just say, none of it really matters. What matters is snakes and ladders with my daughter, right? Mm. Um, and everything that that kind of encompasses. I'll use that as the example. Mm. So space, to answer the question, I would create more space. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. And I think that's something, especially with the lockdown. And one of the things I was grateful for throughout that whole, you know, 18 months of, you know, and the media feeding us so much fear and so much anxiety around our future. And I believed it gave us space. It stopped us from running the hamster thread or whatever the rat race, whatever people call it. And it just, just allowed us to just be for a little while mm. and people started spending more time at home or out in nature and discovering their local community and what it had to offer. And I remember one man saying to me, he said, I've lived here for 10 years, he said, in his area. And he never knew half the things were in it because he never had time to discover it because he was so busy. And he mm. said, what was I so busy doing? I see, he said, I can't even remember 
why mm. I was so busy. <laughs> you know, yeah. he said, what was I doing? It wasn't anything. He wasn't saving the world. You know, his job was in IT. You know, he wasn't changing the world in particular. He said, so I have 10 years of my life living in a beautiful area. And it took for a COVID lockdown for me to get outside yeah. and look around. And yeah. I said, so there, for me, it's always about finding a balance within you know, a negative situation is finding something positive to say, I'm not going to get stuck in this negative forever and, you know, allow it to define my day or myself or my life, but I'm going to find something positive. So absolutely, I agree with you. We can't go on and be finding the positives in everything, but to find a balance between both, you know, mm. and even in this feeling, as I'm feeling this, this is okay. We can be happy and sad together. It's all okay. And that. Same as we say to our children, you know, we have to show them that it's okay to have those days where they're sad and they're not sure why, and they mightn't understand it, but it's okay. I'll sit with you, you know, and mm. if you want to talk, yeah. you can, if you want me to listen, I'm here. And that's just creating space. And I love the simplicity of it, but I always believe if we break things down to a very simple and basic level, all we want is to be loved and to feel that love from somebody else and to give that love back, isn't it, Josh? It, that's, that's exactly what it comes back to, right? It comes back to that interdependent state that we're supposed to live in, which is yeah. I've got people around me that care for me and that can know that I care for them, right? And we can be there for each other in any given moment, right? When I'm down, I've got people around me that can help pick yeah. me up. And when they're down, I like to think that I can pick them up too. And it is that. That's what it comes back to, right? We can go around yeah. everything else, but that's what it comes back to. Yeah, beautiful, Josh. Thank you so much. I have to ask you, with a name like Connolly, there must be some Irish background there, is there? Do you know what's funny? Actually, I'll tell you this very quickly. That, so my dad was Irish, but my dad was fostered at a very young age. Oh. And so I know through family that I've met fairly recently, actually, that most of my dad's side of the family are Irish, right? um and so and live you know for the ones that are still alive are in ireland so it's um i've always had this weird uh sense that i am very irish right i would yeah. say that my heart feels very irish but it's strange that in my late teens i got england tattoos and all that kind of stuff over me right when i was completely lost so i always say that i feel very um attached to my Irish roots. When we we came, me and my wife came over there a few years back. Um, and yeah, I love the place. I love Ireland. My favorite music is Irish. So yeah. it's there in me. Yeah. yeah. Very good. And what part of Ireland did you go to when you came over? Was it Dublin? I'm sure. Was it? Well, we flew into Dublin, but then we hired a car um, and we sort of drove um, right across to the other side, to to Galway's the other side. That's right? where I am. Yeah, the west oh, of okay. Ireland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my uh, one of my closest friends lives there as well. Oh. Um, yeah, P uh, Pat 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 Divley lives there. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I know Pat. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then we and then we drove down uh, to somewhere down the bottom. I'm going to be terrible. Cork yeah we went through Cork so we traveled over like four days we like stayed in all different parts so my favorite band growing up was the Saw Doctors oh <laughs> they're so, from my local town <laughs> yeah okay so what tune is that is it tune, tune? That, yes yeah. yeah okay so um I wanted to 
go to, you know the green and red of me or all their songs <laughs> yeah i you know uh i wanted to, the n17 and all that so we kind of went over there and did a bit of the saw doctors tour if i'm honest with you uh <laughs> but yeah i loved it loved it wow that's lovely and did you connect with any of your irish relations at all josh no no because i i, I sort of didn't know back i didn't know when we visited that i had loads there um so i've sort of connected with the some of them online mm. um but my family history is 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 not as straightforward as just reaching out and popping in for a cup of tea with a lot of people if you know what yeah. i mean so. i know what you mean absolutely <laughs> i do yeah. i was going to say when you know you said you'd have irish background you're like an irish viking that's what you look like josh <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take good, that. Good, yeah. good. Yeah. Joss, it, it's just been amazing talking to you and you just offer so much. And because of your own life experience, you know, that you have brought it into your life now and you're in sharing it with others is just, um, for me, fantastic because you chose to live differently and to be differently from what you were taught as a young person. And I think that's mm. so valuable. And again, when you're working with young people, you're not just going in there and talking, you know, about, you know, a theoretical kind of experience. This is a lived experience that mm. you have. And I think young people respond to it amazingly well. So I can only say continued success in all that you do and that we will all together create more space to being more simplistic and loving beings in this lovely world. Josh Connolly, thank you so much. Thank you. So you can contact Josh through his website, www.joshconnolly.co.uk, Instagram at josh underscore FFW, find him on LinkedIn at Josh Connolly. And you're also the co-host of 115 Miles, the podcast. I was listening to you and has this morning. I love, oh, brilliant. Yeah, I love the two of you together as a team. I think there's great energy. There's great chat. And, you know, you're having fun, but you're also discussing very serious issues, you know. So, mm. yeah, well done and continued success for that as well. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, if you feel this resonates with you or it could resonate with somebody you know, please do share it and pop on to Instagram and give Josh a little follow and check out his podcast. Until next time, stay well and thank you for listening.